Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. In every episode, we'll bring our big English teacher energy discussing the modern literary landscape in context with the classics. Along the way, we'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're reviving Short Story Club with a discussion of The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. Hi, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. Are you looking forward to bringing Short Story Club back? I am. These are episodes that I always really enjoyed recording with you, but I wasn't really sure how they landed with our audience because I don't know, like, how often did you enjoy reading short stories in high school and like being forced to pick it apart? (laughs) But then we had our listener survey and short story club episodes were some favorites and people were asking that we bring it back. So we're really excited to bring it back, make it better than ever. And so I'm thrilled to be back in short story club. What about you? Same. I... I think that these were never based on downloads, our most popular episodes. And that's kind of why we stopped doing them. But, you know, some episodes you do for the downloads and some you do for your hardcore fans. And I feel like these are for the people who, who love when we get extra nerdy, who miss the English class feel, who really want to practice their close reading and just like nerd out over some some classics that you can easily fit into, you know, a short stretch of of reading because not everyone has time to read every classic we discuss on on the podcast, but this is a way for our community to read and analyze something together. So, I'm I'm also very happy that we're we're bringing this back. I think our first short story club episode was the most cited as a favorite. By it our was listeners on our listener survey, which blew my mind. We read because it Roman was all Fever. the way back, episode nine. Yeah, like people like still back. remember it like, from way, way, way back. Yeah, and our sound <laughs> wasn't even that great yet. Nope. Like, <laughs> yeah, sorry, um, I talked we over were... you while you said what story it was. So no, do... <laughs> that's okay. Um, we read Roman Fever by Edith Wharton and had such a fun time discussing it. I mean, it is a great short story, but it just surprised me and delighted me that people remembered back that far. Um, and then we read Speech Sounds by Octavia Butler. That was the, yeah, that, oh that was the last one we've done. So we have oh, not really? done, yes. So we have not done a short, an official short story club episode. I think maybe we've talked about, like we did the yellow wallpaper as yeah. a full episode. We've talked about some other short stories, but Speech Sounds in April of 2021 was our last official short story club episode. So it's been over two years. Oh gosh, that's been longer than I thought. We read The Hunter's Wife by Anthony Doerr, which I still really like that short story. And Horror Story by Carmen Maria Machado. Some really good authors on this list. And then A story that I was thinking about, especially at the opening of the lottery because of the summary descriptions, was uh, All Summer in a Day by Ray Bradbury. So kind of like a mix of classic stories that you'll definitely read in high school or middle school, 
And then a couple of contemporary short stories that are easily found online. I like that mix. I like that mix too. And I I think that Short Story Club is a great way for people to, us included, to read classics where we might not fit in full-length classics into our busy reading schedules, but also to investigate new-to-us authors. Maybe we're not sure if we want to read an entire book by Carmen Maria Machado, but a short story is a great entry point. And then sometimes even if you're familiar with an author, it's really fun to look at their short works and see how they've maybe contributed to their thinking about some novels. Like Horror Story by Carmen Maria Machado feels very um, like a precursor to her memoir in the dream house. So it was really interesting to look at those in conversation. That's what we're all about here at Novel Pairings is writing that's in conversation with other writing. And short stories are a fantastic way to access that. Yeah. And Kate Jemison, The City We Became, was a short story in her short story collection. She turned it into a novel. Um, and I really like that book. So I love that book too. Also looking at this list, we really like leaned into the creepy, eerie short stories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're English teachers. I know. We can't help it. What do you expect? I know. We have I'm to like, traumatize you. <laughs> it's hard for me to even think of short stories that stand the test of time that are not creepy. So um, we'll have to do some investigating if we want to explore a wider variety of tones in Short Story Club from now on. Oh, man. Um, all right. So we wanted to bring Short Story Club back for a while. We kind of thought we might put it on Patreon, but we're here today to talk about it on the public feed because it really fits in with public scholarship. If you haven't listened to our public scholarship episode, that's a good pairing for this one today. So we'll link it in the show notes. But um, Sarah, let's start by just talking about short stories in general. And I want to hear from you, aside from being creepy and unsettling, (laughs) (laughs) what makes a good short story to you? So I've been thinking about this a lot because there are a lot of short story collections coming out this fall from really big authors, some who are known for their short stories, um, like Jhumpa Lahiri. Um, but they, but they're just, I, I've read a lot of it. Like Louise Kennedy has one coming out, Claire Keegan. They're just a lot of short story collections, and I've been trying to sample a lot of them. And to me, what makes a great short story is that it's all about establishing expectations and then subverting them in a concise number of pages, right? Because it's a short story. So leading a reader to kind of think one thing is happening and drop some hints maybe that that things are not exactly what they seem. And then there are reveals throughout the story. And I don't mean massive twists. Like, it's not like, oh my gosh, it was a dream the whole time. or oh, But just the, the way that an author can reveal just enough where there's like a trail of breadcrumbs that you can find it if you go back and reread or if you are closely reading. But there's just a degree of, of establishing expectations and then kind of blowing your mind a little bit. I mean, that's what makes, I think, Roman fever 
such a great short story. I'm looking at a lot of these um, that we've that we've done. The Hunter's Wife speech that all of those have that element where it's not a not a twist, not a surprise, but a reveal. That's what I think makes a fantastic short story, in my opinion. I agree. There's that reveal, but then also I really like when a short story has a little bit of ambiguity as well. So either the ending isn't fully wrapped up with a bow or something is left unexplained and that lends itself to a rereading experience, which I think if you're going to write a short story, making it rereadable, um, almost like not hiding Easter eggs intentionally, but every detail matters. And so that rereadability, you want someone to be able to read it multiple times because it's short. You can reread a short story. Um, and, you know, ideally <laughs> it lands itself in a classroom and you've got people rereading it over and over again for many, many decades, like for Shirley eternity. Jackson, <laughs> the lottery. Um, yeah. I, I like that too, because I think that one critique of short stories or one, one thing people say about why they don't read short stories is that they are always left wanting more. And I think that embracing that as a feature of the form, not a bug, is a great way to, to approach short stories. You're supposed to be left filling in the gaps for yourself, wondering what might be happening next, looking for clues to that if you go back for, for a reread. And that's what makes these so good for discussion, so great to bring into the classroom, not just because they're short and they save time, but because of that piece of there's discussability here. There is room for people to analyze and draw their own conclusions. And it just reads really makes for a rich reading experience. So I love short stories. I think they would be great in book clubs. Um, and I think a lot of people don't love short story collections because they don't want to read short stories back to back to back, which I understand. There are so many short stories available online that you can kind of get those bits and pieces and really enjoy it. Kind of like poetry. I feel like short stories fall into that category um, often where people are like, I don't think I like poetry, but then they just like read one poem, really strikes them. They enjoy that experience. I think short stories can be similar. All right. So we do want to let you know up front that in these short story club episodes, including this one today, we are really bringing out our English teacher toolkits. We're going to do some close reading and really analyzing, digging into this text. So we would love for you to read along with us. Of course, you are welcome to listen to these episodes before you read, you know, if you're midway through a story and you want some explanation or after, but we will be kind of framing our discussion as though we're talking to people who've also read this, this short story. So we have a link to where you can read the short story, The Lottery Online. You probably have read this and if you just want to revisit it through this episode, awesome. If you want to pause and reread it and come back, that's great, great too. But we have a link for you where you can do that reading today. Hey, Novel Pairings listeners, we have some exciting news to share with you all. After launching her wildly successful Read with Jenna book club in 2019, the Today Show's Jenna Bush Hager is now launching the Read with Jenna podcast. 
In each podcast episode, Jenna interviews her favorite authors. You'll hear from the likes of Colleen Hoover, bestselling author of It Ends With Us and Verity, Judy Bloom, author of the YA classic, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, Javier Zamora, poet and author of the moving memoir, Solito, and many others. These authors open up to Jenna about their creative process, their love of books, and what inspires them to share their stories with the world. Join Jenna as she continues her mission to connect fellow book lovers, create conversations, and share her love of reading. To hear these intimate and inspiring conversations, just search Read with Jenna wherever you're listening, and make sure to follow for new episodes every Thursday. Did I get Hager good enough? Hager? Hager. I think think so. If I say Hager, it's going to sound like I'm up north in Minnesota, so... (laughs) Hopefully I, I said fine. it well enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, Sarah. So let's give a setup for the lottery by Shirley Jackson instead of a summary, because we'll kind of talk through this short story and summarize as we go through this discussion. So here's the setup. It's June 27th, which is like really important because... Um, one change that was made to this story was um, the New Yorker, which is where this story was originally published in 1948. They knew that this issue was going to come out on June 27th, and they asked Shirley Jackson, hey, can we change that date so that it matches the exact day that this issue comes out? And she's like, oh, yeah, of course. Brilliant. (laughs) So it's June 27th. I think you should take over the rest of the setup, Sarah. Okay. So it's June 27th. It's a warm summer day, and the residents of a village, and I think that word choice is important, but we'll get into that, gather for an annual ritual called the lottery. So the children show up first, followed by the men, and then their wives trickle in. And as more people arrive in the square, Jackson introduces us to some of the individuals in the community. So there's the boys' ringleader, Bobby Martin the ceremonies kind of leader, Mr. Summers, the postmaster, Mr. Graves, the woman who's running late, Mrs. Hutchinson, the oldest citizen in town, Mr. Warner, and and a few other standouts whose names we get. And then throughout the 12-page story, Jackson starts to make us question just what this lottery is going to be about. And she builds the tension right up until the story's bleak final lines. And that's all we'll say up front because we'll kind of go through this chronologically um, and explore what just what the heck is happening here. Yeah. So, Sarah, have you taught this story? Yes. Have you? Oh, yeah. Many times. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like an English teacher rite of passage to teach the lottery. Like, they should make us do this for a test or something before we get our license. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I, I think that it's, I mean, it's it definitely was in my American literature um, curriculum, and it, it feels very American in some ways. Um, but it's also just a great sh- short story, obviously. So I think it often appears, too, in, like, freshman English courses where you're often learning about analyzing different kinds of forms and, and genres. Um, yeah, I, I and, and I will say teaching it to 11th graders was sometimes 
sometimes great and sometimes challenging because sometimes they'd read it like three times already. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's fine, especially for like an AP class where you are really, really digging into the analysis piece. And it's like, okay, it's fine. It's actually good that you know what's going to happen. Let's really talk about the diction and the imagery of this this story. But sometimes it would get to the point where you'd present, like, we're going to read the lottery and everyone would be like, Ugh, I read this a million times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is. That's tricky because it is one of those stories that I think that even seventh or eighth graders, like middle schoolers, could find something in this story to really latch onto, to relate to in some way because they often feel the most persecuted at school. <laughs> and this is a story about persecution and prejudice. Um, and then I think it's the kind of story where as you mature, your reading of it can mature and you can draw some different, more nuanced connections with it. I Every time I read it, just like when we were talking about Rebecca, every time we read it, something different stands out and something different um, comes to the surface. I feel like there were a lot of um, modern connections that I uh, thought about while reading the lottery this time that I had not thought of before. And that is the mark of a true classic. So... We wanted to talk about this story in part because it's it's fun to revive Short Story Club with a story that many people have already read. It also fits very firmly in our conversation about modernism and postmodernism. Um, this story was originally published in 1948, so that makes it like really right on the cusp between modern literature and postmodern literature. And it doesn't have all of the kind of telltale, especially narrative point of view and voice strategies that we um, have talked about on Patreon with modernism and postmodernism. But this questioning of authority and what is what is truth and why do we follow and believe the things we believe is really a prominent theme of this story. So it feels very of its time, right? I mean, post-World War II, right? This is, I mean, it just fits so right there with historically what's happening. Shirley Jackson herself was Jewish and so, and lived in a town that was not welcoming to her at all. And you see a lot of that in this book. Absolutely. All right. So we open on a fresh, warm, sunny day. And I think it's really important to talk about the way these villagers are introduced. So first we get the children and it's very clear that they're very much separated by gender and gender roles. So the boys are outside, they are playing and talking and, um, then the boys are going off and filling their pockets with stones and um, selecting stones and piling them up in the corner and kind of like playing and guarding it from each other. And um, it says the girls stood aside talking among themselves, looking over their shoulders at the boys. Um, and I think that that separation by gender like right away stood out to me. 
especially because then we get the men trickling in and they're talking about farm stuff. And then the women come in and they're wearing faded house dresses and they come and talk to the women and gossip. So it's like very much already we see these totally separated traditional gender roles. Yeah. And I I think that highlighting the fact that she calls this a village, not a town, um, just really, I think to me, makes me think that we are in the past, that we're reading something historical, especially then when we get that separation by by gender, the farming, the tractors. Not that these things were not the case in 1948, but the tone of it for a while makes it feel a little archaic, um, which I think then she calls into question throughout the rest of, of the story. Um, we definitely see also the way age, in addition to gender, changes the way the characters interact with, with this event. Um, the the men are telling jokes, but they're quiet jokes, and they smiled rather than laughed. So it's like they're trying to carry on in their typical lively manner, but it's just not the same. Yeah, every sentence matters here. Like you can truly go line by line in this story and pick up on something very subtle that Shirley Jackson is shaping and hinting at for us. So um, we get kind of, like you said, village kind of calls to mind this rural setting, often in depictions of the story, whether it's a graphic novel version, um, which I think Shirley Jackson's grandson did, um, a graphic novel version, or whether it's just like pictures paired with this story, you often get like people standing around in a field. Mm -hmm. And I think that imagery is really striking. So anyway, we get all of these people gathering and um, then in, what is it, like the fifth paragraph or so, the fourth or fifth paragraph, we see the lottery was conducted. And that's our first like introduction to the titular event. Um, and it says, as were the square dances, the teenage club, the Halloween program by Mr. Summers, who had time and energy to devote to civic activities. I think it's really interesting that the lottery is right away grouped in with all of these other fun events and programs. So it just suggests something about the way that this event is portrayed or is treated in the community. And his description as a round-faced, jovial man is fascinating. And it goes well with his name, Mr. Summers. All of the names in here are really important. And he ran the, the coal business. I don't think this is a huge matter of, of significance, but I do think that kind of the tension between the rural and the industry is at work throughout here and, and the question of what makes a civilization civilized. And so the fact that he is a businessman is significant. Um, and he arrives, of course, carrying the black wooden box. And I think any wooden box calls to mind a casket, but especially a black one that is then followed by a postmaster named Mr. Graves. <laughs> yeah. It's also just like, I don't know, a black box right away. All of my English teacher spidey senses are going off that this is somehow symbolic. 
And it is. It ends up definitely being symbolic. Um, There is a description of the box. We spend like a good amount of time talking about the box, which is part of where this is coming from. Um, But the box is old and the paint is chipped and it's really worn down. And people have talked about getting a new box or replacing it, but no one wants to upset the tradition of the old box. Um, And I think significantly, this sentence is interesting. There was a story that the present box had been made with some pieces of the box that had preceded it. The one that had been constructed when the first people settled down to make a village here. Um, So it gets shabbier every year. It is wearing down. And like I said, some people say, hey, we should get a new one. But overall, people do not like change and they don't want to get rid of the old box. It's significant and it's tradition. And and here's where I think that we kind of start wondering like, when in time are we? Is this like present, mm-hmm. present day? Um, or is this, um, are we back in like, because I think it's very easy to picture this as like Puritan, right? Kind of community or, yeah. Um, but the fact that it's been generations and generations since people first settled down here, um, we we are questioning that. I also think it's interesting that they changed the location of where the box is stored each each year mm-hmm. because some things are like very rigid and some things are not. But I I also think that gives a great impression of why I mean nobody wants to like have it near them all the time, so it kind of shifts from place to place when it's not in use. Yeah. It's also, I don't know, like if you have something precious and if you're worried about people coming and doing something to the box, like moving it around also makes a lot of sense. So yeah, there's a lot happening just with the box. Um, But we get um, some description of the people here and more description of the Uh, tradition itself as the people are filing in and as they're talking to each other. So um, let's see, Mr. Summers um, is here and kind of waiting for everyone to file in. And Mrs. Hutchinson, um, her sweater's thrown over her shoulders. She's like running down the path and she's kind of late. um, But obviously this isn't going to start until everybody is accounted for. Um, and she says, clean forgot what day it was um, to her friend, Mrs. Delacroix, um, which is funny because there's like a specific little line where it's like, this is how this last name is pronounced. Oh, the, yeah. <laughs> the, the villagers pronounced it Delacroix. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I think and that, that means hilarious. of the cross, like uh, and all of these names are again mm-hmm. are significant. And and Mrs. Hutchinson's kind of bumbling and funny, and people people laugh at some of her her jokes. Like, you know, she's she says like, "You, I can't just leave my dishes in the sink," and everyone laughs. And if you know where this is going, that's like a very foreboding line. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I'll, this is another moment where so the the two women they call their husbands their old man. That's another like very presenting of this story, right? That that's how they are kind of in, in slang referring to their to their husbands. Mm. Um, also, just like the way that 
their sort of rural um, East Coast dialect is depicted here. So um, like it says, you wouldn't have me leave my dishes in the sink. So it's very like colloquial, casual kind of um, you get the impression these are like salt of the earth people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. So then they they take roll and then we get this little after the last person says that they're here, we get a tiny line break, which I I think the line breaks throughout here are significant. I I, I read it at least in my book copy. Did the New Yorker mm-hmm. copy have those line breaks as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it does. It just leaves a little bit, like in a short story, just like in a poem, like all of these things are intentional. So it leaves that little bit of anticipation, even though, of course, you jump right into into the next paragraph. A sudden hush fell on the crowd. So people had been chatting, um, making some jokes, saying whether they were present, right? And then now it's totally silent. And so um, we know that this has happened so, so many times. So people aren't really listening to the directions. But of course, we, the reader, need the directions of how this is going to work. So the the men come up when their names are called and grab a slip of paper that's folded in half. And nobody can peek at their paper until Mr. Summers gives the, the go-ahead. They go through alphabetically. Um, and... Um, we we see some of the the families who don't have a husband head of household and how that gets distributed either to the wife or maybe to an oldest son if he's of age um while this is happening a very significant conversation is going on and it is Mr. Adams talking to old man Warner saying that over in the North Village, they're talking of giving up the lottery. Old man Warner snorted, pack of crazy fools, he said, listening to the young folks. Nothing's good enough for them. Next thing you know, they'll be wanting to go back to living in caves. Nobody work anymore. Live that way for a while. So (laughs) here we learn a couple of really important things. One is that it's possible to give up the lottery. Other places have, some places have already quit the lotteries, we hear another character say. So as you're reading, like what comes, what came to your mind, if you can, I mean, if you can remember to not having known what was coming or even knowing what's coming, like what do you think about when you get to this, this significant section? Oh, gosh. It is really hard to remember a time before knowing exactly what they were talking about. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think probably for years I have just thought about um, generational views of change, particularly in politics. And um, the kind of like older generation's tendency to be really afraid of change um, and just say like, well, young people are crazy for thinking that's going to work. So let them try it and see what happens, but they're going to regret their choice to change things. It just, it really reminds me of so many political conversations. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's really it. I mean, I was still thinking about that on on this reading, um, but I don't know that I was making any particular guesses. Like if I think back to my first read, I don't know. Do you have something that you had in mind, Sarah? No, I mean, I, I think that this was one of the moments where maybe some readers first start, not that there aren't earlier clues, but really start wondering like, What's going to happen? happen? <laughs> the uneasiness? Yes. Yeah. Um, but I also, I think my um, my reading this time, really, I was drawn to every juxtaposition of sort of like, quote unquote, civilized versus uncivilized, and how the the story, ironically, is drawing a connection between this practice of the lottery and civil civilized society, um, mm-hmm. that it's necessary. This kind of thing is necessary for a functioning society. Um, and if we don't do this kind of thing, then it will just be anarchy and chaos. Um, and maybe when we arrive at the reveal, the ending, we can talk about what she, what point she might be making with that. All right. So after this conversation, um, and after the roll is finished, there was a long pause, a breathless pause, until Mr. Summers, holding his slip of paper in the air, said, all right, fellows. For a minute, no one moved. Then all the slips of paper were opened. Suddenly, all the women began to speak at once, saying, who is it? Who's got it? Is it the Dunbars? Is it the Watsons? Then the voices began to say, it's Hutchinson. It's Bill. Bill Hutchinson's got it. And I we, think that that like all of a sudden everything's so calm, everything's so casual. I think that this little paragraph here after that line break is where it's like all of a sudden everybody seems frantic and tense. Mm-hmm. Like just the rhythm of those sentences, the questions, you can feel the tension building right here. Yes. And and the, the family whose husband is too sick to attend like – sends her son immediately to go tell him. So you know that this news is like needs to be spread immediately to the couple of people who who can't make it. It is that dire. And then we get Tessie Hutchinson, who we met earlier, saying, you didn't give him time enough to take any paper he wanted. I saw you. It wasn't fair. And now if we had any shadow of a doubt before, we know that being the one to draw it, winning this lottery is not a good thing. It's mm-hmm. a, and so now the tension is kind of is begins to to build, and things start happening faster because we get a lot of things happening in quick dialogue. So, Mr. Hutchinson, Bill immediately says, oh, "So, let me go back, uh, Mrs. Della." Croy, Delacroix, <laughs> Delacroix, Delacroix, <laughs> um, tells her to be a good sport. All of us took the same chance. And so, you know, we get them trying to soothe her, but not, not Bill. He says, shut up, Tessie. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know he must be feeling severe anxiety as well. We're not really sure what's going to happen here, but we see them kind of turning on each other immediately. Yeah, I think it's interesting um, 
There are a couple of words repeated by Mrs. Hutchinson. She's saying um, it wasn't fair. Um, Multiple times she says it's not fair. And she also is saying everybody saw that. Listen, everybody. So that kind of fairness, I think, is interesting. She's bringing up it's not fair, it's not fair. Um, And everybody, like she's trying to talk to everybody community-wide. I found that word choice interesting and that repetition interesting on this read-through. Mm-hmm. And, and nobody comes to her aid. Nobody agrees with her. Nobody, they just, they keep going through. And then Tessie tries to throw her daughter under the bus, which <laughs> mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm yeah. not sure how much I picked up on that the first time. We still don't really know what exactly is happening. We know that this Hutchinson family has one slash lost something. And then we get this question of like, okay, well, who else is in your household? And she's like, well, Don and Eva. And they say, no, no daughters draw with their husbands. So we get this like, you know, what's, what's happening? We're trying to like, to, um, is she trying to make her chances better? Something's going on there. Um, she keeps repeating it wasn't fair and Bill is just trying to like straight ahead. Like, let's just get this done. Here's who, yeah. who we have. There are five of them all together, T- Bill, Tessie, and then there are three kids, Bill Jr., Nancy, and little Dave, which Okay. Um, So what happens then, just in practicality, is they take five slips of paper because there are five of them. One of them is the one with the the mark that signifies who has drawn the winning-losing lottery ticket, and they put them back in the box. And uh, even as Tessie continues to say it's not fair, they all approach to draw. If you didn't think that something ominous and foreboding was going on before, you definitely would when the crowd grows quiet and the family goes to draw out the slips of paper and a girl whispers, I hope it's not Nancy. And the sound of the whisper reaches the edges of the crowd. Um, And it seems like everybody is just really nervous. And I think uh, Nancy opens it and like her friends are relieved. Um, There's a sigh through the crowd when they see a blank um, sheet of paper. And I think one line that really stands out to me is old man Warner says, it's not the way it used to be. People ain't the way they used to be. And he's saying that as the crowd is hushed and quiet. And of course, I don't remember what I thought this meant on my first reading. Um, But having read it many times, to me, it seems like maybe the crowds were more joyful or jubilant or raucous or raging in the past. And so he's saying it's not the way it used to be. People ain't the way they used to be because there used to be more like energy behind this 
ritual. There used to be more like enthusiasm for getting it done rather than this crowd who are being quiet and reverent and scared and nervous at what's going to happen. Yeah. I, 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 that's how I read it to that. Plus the, maybe, um, the complaining aspect of those who drew the, the, um, the ticket. I, maybe there was a more of an acceptance or maybe even an honor in being the person because that also comes right after somebody saying, I hope it's not Nancy. So like that idea of like, it's a bad thing and it, it is a bad thing to draw. Um, the generational piece is so interesting here. I also on this read really noted um, little Davy drawing his ticket and how he is so young that his brother has to help him. He has to hold his ticket and, you know, make sure because Davy evidently is so young that he couldn't understand that rule not to open his ticket, his folded piece of paper until the signal is given. Um, and that is just really uh, horrifying and heartbreaking. So we we also do see like, you know, the, when um, there was a general sigh through the crowd as he um, and he is li- little um, little Davy's piece of paper held it up that it was blank. So in spite of what's going to happen, at the very least, these people are like, thank goodness it's not the mm-hmm. small child. Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that relief, as we're going to come to realize, is probably for multiple reasons. Um, not only because they're relieved that it's not him for his sake, but also for their sakes. Yes. Yes. So let's continue on. So, so then, um, it's, it's Tessie. We learn it is Mrs. Hutchinson. She opens it, 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 her piece of paper. It had a black spot on it. The black spot Mr. Summers had made the night before with the heavy pencil in the coal company office. And then, all right, folks, Mr. Summers says, let's finish quickly. Although the villagers had forgotten the ritual and lost the original black box, they still remembered to use stones. And like, if you're still like chills, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) you're still like not certain what's about to happen. That just all of a sudden, you know, like, right, this, they are going to stone this woman. Um, And I don't know, do you want to do you want to pause here and say anything about that kind of that sentence, that movement. It's so haunting. They Mm -hmm. still remember to use stones. And um, as you were talking about earlier, Sarah, placing this story in a certain time, like we have very clear indicators that it's supposed to be like a modern time Mm -hmm. um, set in the present of Shirley Jackson's time. But then you have, they remember to use stones and you have stoning, which is biblical Mm -hmm. and takes you back to an ancient rite. Um, And I think that that sort of like ancient feeling to this ritual and tradition is part of what just 
makes it so, so haunting, so eerie, so striking. And then we get the the specific characters who we've met before and how they respond. So Mrs. Delacroix selected a stone so large she had to pick it up with both hands. She turns to her friend and says, come on, let's hurry, and kind of goes running towards Mrs. Hutchinson. Um, The friend has small stones in both hands. She can't run, but she says, I'll catch up with you. Um, The children had stones already, and someone gave little Davy Hutchinson a few pebbles. That just makes me want to throw up. Yep, same. Um, And Tessie continues to say, it isn't fair. And then a stone hit her on the side of the head. We'll just Old read. man Warner is yeah. saying, come on, come on, everyone. Um, so he's like encouraging. He's part of one driving the rest of this ritual. And the story ends. It isn't fair. It isn't right. Mrs. Hutchinson screamed. And then they were upon her. Literal chills. I have chills up and down my back right now. That Not last line kind. is so good. Oh my gosh. I mean, this whole story is so good. Yeah. I, I, it's so good. I mean, I, there's so many ways you could, she could have ended, you know, this, this story. Um, she could have ended it when the stone hit her on the head. She could have ended it like more from like a zoomed out perspective almost, but the, like they were upon her. I think what I really appreciate about that sentence is that there's a subject. It's they, right? The, the the crowd, the people, the villagers are upon her. They're they have agency. There's no like there's there's she's not ending with the passive, the passive voice. And that really is affecting. Um and I, I think it's amazing that in such a short sentence we get that dual perspective almost of Mrs. Hutchinson just screaming that it's not right and the whole crowd um zoom, you know being upon her all right so Sarah I feel like we've talked a lot about like sentence level craft stuff as as we've gone through this story but now I think it's time to zoom out a little bit and talk about some of the themes um, and connections. So before we actually, before we dive into that conversation, I um, just want to say this time reading this story, because I read it on the New Yorker website, um, I was thinking more about like when the original readers read this in their copy of the New Yorker. And um, so I dug into it a little bit and apparently the story basically went viral um, Mm. in the way that it would have in 1948. Tons of letters flooded into the New Yorker office. People canceled their subscriptions because they were so appalled that they would publish this story. Um, Hundreds of people wrote the New Yorker and wrote Shirley Jackson because they were displeased with the ambiguity and they wanted to know more about what happened and why. And I find that really fascinating. I also find it fascinating that in 1948, you could draw so many connections to what this could possibly be an allegory for. And you could do that every single decade since. No matter when you were reading this in time, you could have 
almost a direct allegory for what you thought this story meant. Yeah, I and I I really I I really appreciate short stories like this. Like I I I love short stories that are more like realistic and and grounded in their their time. Not that this isn't grounded in its time, but it's I think it's rarer now to find short stories that are trying to offer such kind of wide-reaching commentary and I really enjoy it when I when I find those. Um it it is like sadly a perennial <laughs> story. Um and yeah, I think that, you know, obviously this is a story about about prejudice and scapegoating and um and I think that that in my mind right now is what stands out so much is that idea that for a, and again, this is said both like earnestly in terms of pointing this out and ironically in that it doesn't have to be this way, this idea that um, for a functioning civil society, the, there needs to be somebody who loses always, that there needs to be a scapegoat, there needs to be somebody who's who's put down, who's punished, um, whether that's, you know, um, like commenting on, on actual, on historical events where that was very obviously happening. I mean, Jackson wrote this right after World War II and the Holocaust, or whether we're thinking about something like the way the poor are treated in society, just kind of like, that's just the way it is. Somebody has to, to lose. Um, it's really haunting to frame it in such a visible way. In the San Francisco Chronicle, Shirley Jackson said, explaining just what I had hoped the story to say is very difficult. I suppose I hoped by setting a particularly brutal ancient rite in the present and in my own village to shock the story's readers with a graphic dramatization of pointless violence and general inhumanity in their own lives. Mm -hmm. And she does it so well. Yeah. And so we talk about sort of the nature of quote universal themes or like themes that really touch on a certain aspect of humanity in classic literature and how it seems like sometimes authors are including those intentionally and sometimes authors like it just happens because they're telling a really good story. And I think Shirley Jackson was really intentionally doing something here, Um, really intentionally displaying something in the human condition for us. And all of her stories have to do with ordinary evil. So like there's not necessarily like a big monster that everyone's fighting. It's like the evil that is present in everyday ordinary lives, which to me is more chilling. I agree. I, I, I agree. It, this reading this this time was incredibly chilling. Like you said, there are parts that made me sick. I can understand why people were like, I don't, how could you put this in my New Yorker? I don't want to read. read right. But it is one of those stories that really um, shakes you out of your, your comfort zone. I, um, 
I feel like I've talked about this a lot, but it's just on my mind so much that I was at a Lauren Groff event and she said that in her mind, kind of the difference between art and entertainment is that entertainment sort of upholds the status quo and makes you feel kind of comforted or at least comfortable to consume it. And that art makes you uncomfortable in the way it's challenging the status quo. And like, think about, about that. Like this story, the lottery is, is absolutely art and it's art for like all, all times. Like it's always, I think, going to be sort of challenging and uncomfortable because of the way people are always cruel to each other, even though the way that looks might change. Which is so <laughs> it's disheartening. Bleak. It is. It's like, a bleak it's, story. <laughs> on the one hand, when we're talking about, kind of excitedly talking about like, this story is always so relevant. That's what makes it such a great text to read. On the other hand, it's like, oh my gosh, the story is still relevant. She does put in the story that some villages have ended this practice and others are considering it. And I think that that is her version of like a glimmer of hope. I mean, it it's also in some ways bleaker because you know that these people could choose not to do it and they ch- are yeah. choosing to continue. But the idea that other places have removed this, I think is also like that little hope on the horizon. All right, Sarah. So we will discuss this more on Discord. So in our Patreon community, we have a Discord channel and we have a thread in there called Short Story Club. So we'll discuss this more on that thread. We're really excited to hear from all of you about this story. Um, But before we fully close out and wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about censorship and the lottery, Um, a little bit about banned books, because this is a story that has been on banned classroom lists um, many, 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 many times. And I find that incredibly ironic given what it is about. (laughs) Um, It's about upholding tradition and banning it. suggests something about the way that people hold really tightly to tradition. Um, And so I don't have any like specific instances in the U.S. to cite where this story has been on the banned list, but I mean, you can just imagine how it goes. Like, yes, it's about stoning people. That is bleak. I can understand why maybe some parents just wouldn't want their kids to read about that. Um, But this story was also banned in South Africa during the apartheid. Mm. Banned at significant moments in history where people were bucking social norms, fighting against traditional roles. And um, there is is something subversive about this story. In addition to it just being a bleak commentary on the human condition – when you said there's a little glimmer of hope in here, clearly there's something subversive in here. Otherwise, I don't think it would be banned so frequently. Absolutely. Well, we are excited to talk about this more with our our Patreon community on Discord. If you would like to join us um, talking about this, chatting about it, maybe talking more about 
why this story might be so frequently banned, there's a link to our Patreon community there. We are not going to be offering pairings for our short story club episodes because we need almost an hour (laughs) to (laughs) dive into a story. But Chelsea, before we finish out our episode today, tell us, what are you reading now? Um, well, I'll share a book that I just finished because it was a short story collection that I listened to on audio and I enjoyed very much. It is Dearborn by Ghassan uh, Zainadine. I don't know exactly how to pronounce his last name. I haven't listened to interviews with him yet. Um, so I will correct that um, later. But this is a, it's, kind of a short story collection, but they're also interconnected. They all take place in Dearborn, Michigan, um, and portray the lives of an Arab American community. Um, and some of the stories are funny and some are tragic and some are tragicomic. Um, but I really enjoyed this collection. There are multiple narrators on the audiobook, So I thought that was a great way to take in these stories And yeah, it was just, it was a really, really solid collection. And I've seen it on some starred reviews and some lists and I hope more people pick it up. So that is Dearborn. And of course, we'll have a link in the show notes for you. What about you, Sarah? What are you reading? I'm reading a novella called Loved and Missed. I read about this in the Atlantic Magazine book review. It's um, just recently out from the New York Review of Books. It is a mother-daughter story, but it is a very sad and complicated one. Um, It is about a woman named Ruth whose grown daughter, Eleanor, is addicted to drugs and has just had her first baby. And the way that Ruth tries to support Eleanor, but also fight for her granddaughter, Lily. What I love and loving about this so far is that while it is very, um, very hard and challenging and dark. The love that um, Ruth has both for Eleanor, but especially for baby Lily and the way she delights in her babyhood is such a pleasure to, to read. I think most stories that feature anyone's relationship with a baby is very dark and and I get that but it is really nice to even in the midst of a very hard and challenging story read about some of the the delights of having a tiny human in your life all right that's it for short story club we're so glad that you are joining us for these super nerdy conversations and if you want to talk more about this short story or other short stories in general you can join us on patreon to access our exclusive discord channel where our nerdy readers discuss classic and modern literature dive into closer readings of our selections and we also share delightfully bookish articles and links so you can join us for just five dollars a month and you'll be able to join that discussion and listen to our Friday bonus episodes. And for $10, you will have access to our classes, events, and more. So go on over to patreon.com slash novel pairings to sign up today. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. We'll be back soon with another installment in our Modern Readers series. 
Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.